Welcome, everybody, on this incredibly beautiful day here at Owan and in this region. And thank you very much for showing up today. And together, we create a Buddha field within which we practice. Um, it's a rare opportunity. Uh, each one of you has made an effort to make it here and to collaborate with one another in creating a field uh, in which we practice. Uh, and we practice this deep, meaningful way of living. So without you coming here, again, this building is just a bunch of wood and uh, rice paper. <laughs> so, uh, very grateful that uh, you made the effort to get here and to share, to share together today. And happy Mother's Day to those of you who are indeed mothers. <clears throat> and beyond that, we recited the Loving Kindness Sutra, which includes the passage even as a mother, at the risk of her life, watches over and protects her only child, so with the boundless mind should we cherish all living things. So on some level, in this practice, we are all like mothers with only children who we protect and love and care for, all beings, there is, in Dogen, there are three minds uh, in our practice. The first is, uh, not the first in importance, but the first is uh, Daishin, magnanimous mind, generous mind, Dai, great, great mind, open, generous, uh, uh, giving. And then there is... Um, Joshin, which is joyful mind, and that's what our practice is fundamentally all about. It's about a joy, the joy of living, <clears throat> and bringing joy and liberation to all beings. And then there's Roshin, which is parental mind, which is the mind that takes care of things, that protects things, things and beings. And so this is a practice in which we cultivate Roshan, parental mind, caring, caring for beings, caring for all beings, indiscriminately. So happy parental mind <laughs> to all of you uh, practicing, practicing this way of living. For the next however many weeks, we're going to be exploring a bit of the spirit and teachings of our lineage holder, which is Kobin Chino Roshi. This is the lineage in which I was ordained, which Taishin was ordained, which Daigen was ordained, and which some of you will be ordained in this lineage. And this lineage has a certain uh, person at the head of it, uh, or at the bottom of it, <laughs> the foundation of the lineage. 
And it's his teachings, his spirit, that guides the spirit of Oan. So it, it's helpful uh, to learn a little bit about him and about the spirit of his teachings. And so we will be focusing on some of the themes that he has uh, taught, and he has, didn't write uh, anything, uh, but some of his students <clears throat> transcribed his uh, Dharma talks. He was a master calligrapher and a master at Kyoto, the, the um, uh, archery, and uh, had, was also a wonderful painter as well, uh, did, did beautiful work with brush and ink. So he had many skills. Um, and today I'm going to focus on loss. And early on, uh, as a child, he lost his parents. Um, Coben lost his parents. And he also lost uh, his place in Japanese society when he came to this country. So he lost his, his connection with his homeland uh, when he came to teach here and establish various Dharma centers and temples in this country. So he, he experienced some very fundamental losses in his life. And during his life, he also experienced a, a great many losses. In the end, we experienced the loss of his life at a fairly young age, because when he was in Switzerland um, uh, at a, another Dharma center that he established, his little girl, eight-year-old girl, was swimming in a pond, and she didn't know how to swim. So she started gasping for breath, and he was watching her, and as a parent, immediately jumped in to the pond to save her. Unfortunately, he didn't know how to swim either, and they both drowned. So we, in, we, lost, we lost a teacher, and he lost his children, uh, and his children lost a father. So Coben talked a lot about um, loss, uh, particularly in relationship to the challenges of human life. Uh, he often talked about being a human being as a very uh, difficult thing to be. Um, a, uh, it's an auspicious thing to, to be born as a human because we have the capacity to be liberated and to listen to these teachings. <clears throat> but being a human is a hard job uh, and we have a lot of um, pressures, a lot of responsibilities, a lot of cares um, because we are, we have a parental mind. We, we, as sometimes people say, this practice makes things more difficult because we're more aware. We're more aware of suffering. We're more aware of the needs of others. <clears throat> and so it's being a, a Zen Buddhist is really challenging, demanding, 
way of living, even though it's immensely joyful and um, real, but it also is, is difficult. And it involves a lot of loss because it's, it's very much aware of impermanence. And impermanence is very much about loss. In fact, we could say that our life is one continuous losing, losing, losing. Because impermanence, we try to grab something, make it stable, make it solid, make it last, Mm -hmm. and it's just slips right through our fingers like water. So we're, as impermanence continues to flow in our lives, we can regard this as losing. And ultimately, of course, we lose our life. So in some sense, our very lives are what we we could call a deconstruction. (laughs) You know, we deconstruct as as from the moment we born it's like it's like a, a new car from the moment you take it off the lot it starts depreciating <laughs> so it's kind of like that with us as soon as we're born we start depreciating and i can you know some of us elders can testify <laughs> Where, despite our tremendous efforts <laughs> to maintain this 20, 30-year-old energetic being, <laughs> it's just slipping out from under us. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes the life of a Zen practitioner is called one continuous mistake. We can also call it one continuous loss. And so... Perhaps it makes some sense for us to kind of practice loss because that is what is happening in our lives. So let's, let's practice. Let's see how we, we cope with it, we deal with it, we process it. And by the way, you know, Usually on our little on our altar in that little box we we have the names of people who have passed away or who have uh, who are sick or who really are uh, uh, needing attention and who are in crisis in their life in some way and usually maybe there's one or two cards that's starting to fill up. And I'm hearing also from you, uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of crisis, a lot of loss in people's lives. And of course, as we get older, we start losing people more and more. Um, and so this is, this is realistic. Uh, and as Zen practitioners, we face reality. We don't run from it. Uh, even if it's painful, we learn how to practice with it. Um, so, 
recognizing that and hearing from all of you, it seemed appropriate right now to address loss. And I think each of you can probably identify some significant losses that you've recently experienced. Um, and so I invite you to kind of keep, keep that in mind, uh, not to try to distract from it, not to try to um, shut down on it, but to welcome it, uh, to, to put out the welcome mat for it and see what, what is happening here. Because loss is the kind of thing, it's painful, it hurts. And of course, we're, we're trained to avoid pain or to medicate against it, uh, to, to somehow either run away, fight it, the fight, flight, or freeze. Just, I, I, I'm paralyzed. I don't, can't, don't know what to do about it. In our practice, come on in. Uh, nothing to fear here. Um, we don't. We don't. We're not afraid of. We we can meet this, and we can uh, examine it, and we can grow from it. Our sense of loss has a lot to do with the quality and level of our attachments. Right? So there's a, there's a dynamic happening between our sense of losing something and how much we're attached to it. We don't feel as if we've lost something unless we're attached to it in some way, right? Unless somehow... It's meaningful to us that we've connected with it, that it's ours, like a possession. You know, if, if, if I lose my teacher stick, um, my, my sense of loss is only because, you know, this is important to me. Um, I worked hard for this, and it's part of my identity. And so if I lose it, it's like, oh my God, where did I... But if I, if I wasn't attached to it, it's just gone. You know, it's not, not a big deal. You know, things that we lose. I, I, lost, uh, I lost my handkerchief. You know, big deal. I wasn't attached. Now, some of us are attached to our particular handkerchief, <laughs> right? And if we lost that, that would be horrible. And sometimes we look at you know, somebody who's lost something, why, why are you so upset about that? Uh, so each of us has our own particular attachments, right? So there is a, a story um, about the function of attachments and how that relates to loss and how we can actually practice losing losing, losing. Not that it's not going to be painful, but that we're not going to be surprised by it. Um, so there's a story about uh, a man, uh, a lay practitioner, a very wealthy businessman, 
who um, had it all, you know, had wealth, had status, had a nice family, um, was young, uh, had, had, sounds like, sounds like Buddha almost, but um, he wasn't happy. He, he just, there was something, he was not content. He had a very full and busy life, like I suspect most of us do. A very full and busy life. And a successful life. But wasn't happy, wasn't content. And so he went to a Zen master, his teacher, and said, I don't, I don't understand why I, I'm still unsettled. I'm not, I'm not content. I'm not at peace. And so the Zen master handed him a basket. And he says, come on, let's, let's take a walk along the riverbank here. It's always along a river. <laughs> All the Zen masters seem to live <laughs> at the side of rivers for some reason. Of course, that's about impermanence, so not, un, un, not surprising. And so Othello is carrying his basket in the Zen meshes. Let's start picking up stones. I want you to start picking up stones along the riverbank. Okay, you know, it didn't seem that profound, <laughs> but uh, he decided, yeah, this, this is my teacher. I'm going to do what he says. So they're walking along, picking up stones, putting it in this stone, and this stone, and filling up the basket, and they keep going. And gradually, this man starts slowing down um, and bending over and feeling, "Ah, I can't really go very much further. And the Zen master says, you know, what's, what's the problem here? And... I'm sure he didn't say that, but <laughs> something on that order. Um, and the, the fellow says, this basket is it's just weighing me down. I, I can't move. Um, and the Zen master said, well, okay, this is the time for the teaching. <laughs> when, in a way, someone reaches a crisis or is, can't go any further, some, some sort of block, blockage come to a standstill. And so the Zen master picks up a stone and looks at it and he says, this is power. And he throws it back into the river. Picks up another stone and he says, this is fame. Picks up another stone, looks at it. This is wealth. Looks at it. Is that another stone? This is victory. This is mastery and control. <laughs> this is perfect relationships. <laughs> this is overthinking. <laughs> you get the idea. And slowly but surely, the basket. Um, is empty. So all the things that this fellow had accumulated was 
weighing him down. And he was not free. So the lesson here was that contentment is not about more. It's about less. It's about eliminating attachments, eliminating all of those things that you've put in your basket that you think are going to make you free and happy. And one finds that they are just empty in that sense, that they're just a burden. In fact, just putting the basket down <laughs> is probably a liberating act, which is kind of what we do here, if we, if, if we can. Some of us have brought the basket in with us, <laughs> and it's like sitting right beside, <laughs> beside us or, <laughs> you know. But there's an invitation here at the door. Leave your basket of stones here and empty. So I guess what our practice is asking us to do is give everything up and you're going to get nothing back. Wow, what a deal that is. <laughs> Give everything up and you're not getting anything back. That's not, that's not the capitalist way, right? <laughs> you know, this is, that's, that's not a really attractive transaction. <laughs> you know, Give everything up and you're not going to get anything back. But when you think about not getting anything back, it could be, I'm free. You get nothing. You get nothing to weigh you down. You get what we call emptiness, possibility. <laughs> There's this, now maybe it's a, a, a fad that's all already disappeared, but there was this fad uh, a while of um, getting rid of your clutter. Uh, I think there was a Japanese woman. Uh, what was her name? Marie Kondo. Marie Kondo, right? And she was famous. She, what did, I think she said, one of the things you need to do in your life is take everything out of your drawers, right? And your closets and everything. And just everything. Just set it in the middle of your living room. And then you pick up each thing, right? And you hold it, like you're holding your high school jacket, you know, <laughs> that somehow you're, you're attached to. And you say, does, does this give me joy? And if it doesn't give you joy, it goes to goodwill to give somebody else maybe joy. And with each thing. So it's kind of 
examining the stones in your basket. Each stone, wealth, you know, mastery and control. Uh, does this give me joy? Does this bring me joy? And not just happiness or pleasure. Again, that's another stone in the basket, pleasure. You know, what about that? You know, what does seeking after pleasure do, do for me? So it's our practice is examining like Marie Kondo, you know, spring cleaning, <laughs> you know, getting those stones out of the basket and taking a look at them and seeing if they can't be thrown back into the river, the river of impermanence, that whether they're not really weighing heavily on us or whether we'd be a lot better and feel lighter, enlightenment, lighting, lighting, lightening up by casting them back into the river of impermanence. So I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to, un, uh, to undermine this sense of attachment that we have. Because a lot of so-called critics of our practice, when we talk about non-attachment, there's a, a criticism that says, well, you know, that makes you inhuman if you're not attached, if you're not connected, if you're not, if you don't value things. Um, this notion of non-attachment, you know, you're just cool about everything. You don't really care about anything in particular, you know, this state of equanimity. Uh, and that's, that's a cold, heartless way. That's not at all what our practice is about. But recognizing, for example, that there are different forms of attachment which result in different, different kinds of loss, as I've, as I've tried to indicate. Some attachments are very, very powerful. And I suspect that those attachments have very much to do with our personal identity. The things that are closest to how we conceive of who we are are the hardest to feel loss about. For example, our parents. We're, most of us are quite attached to them because we are connected in a very deep way. Our very identity is bound up with our parents, our children if we're parents ourselves. You know, I'm really, if I lost my daughter, I mean, that would be a profound loss. Um, and I suspect, you know, that would be true for, you know, for those of you who have children. A pet, you know, my dog, my cat, <laughs> my fat cat is a reflection of me, you know. I chose this dog because she has a lot of my characteristics, <laughs> you know. She's strong, she's big, she's playful. <laughs> I've lost, you know, I'm 
connected with her because she reflects me. My children reflect me. My friends, if you lose a friendship, you know, that's so much a defining who you are. Your relationships define who you are. So these attachments are very strong and their loss is profound, is really difficult. <clears throat> Again, some attachments are easy to let go of. The loss isn't that critical. Um, so when we look at our sense of loss, it's helpful to have compassion for ourselves when our very identities are threatened by the loss of someone or something, even a possession that we have. Like my grandmother, may she rest in peace, not only gave me these little diamonds, which are very precious because she brought them from Russia, um, and were her only means of survival uh, when she came to this country. So those are very precious. But she also gave me an old watch that she had. And I, you know, that's, that's my grandmother. Like things you've inherited from your, from your ancestors. I lost, I, I put that watch in a place that I knew was absolutely safe, that um, nobody else would find it. And I can't find it. I, f I forgot where I put it. And it's driving me crazy to this day that I do not, I cannot find that watch. And it's that, it's, it's a memory of my grandmother mm -hmm. that is still a burden. I can't let it go. I can't let it go because it's very much uh, about me and my relationship to my grandmother. <clears throat> So if you, from a Zen point of view, if you examine your losses, the ones that are really difficult and meaningful, I think you will be able to trace the, the fundamental loss is the loss of your identity is the loss of who you think you are. And in our practice, that is what you have to give away. Otherwise you will suffer needlessly. The hardest thing, the, the thing that we are most attached to is who we think we are. And this this is who I am. And something is pulled out. A child, a dog, a cat, a, a relationship, a job. <laughs> it, I don't know what it is for you. A self-image. And suddenly, oh, I'm not a mother anymore. Like for me it was, I was a university professor. Mm -hmm. And then I was no longer a university professor. And someone, someone in the supermarket, you know, saw my cart filled up with healthy food. <laughs> and she said, well, you must, you must 
be a professor, or you know, because you have all this healthy food. <laughs> I don't get that connection, but anyway, she's because it's Penn State, and I I thought well, I can't say that anymore. I can't say that I, I'm, you know, it's like oh I'm naked. I had I had to give that that up. So ultimately, there is no self permanent. There's only these constructions. And you have to, unless you want to suffer these losses, you have to give that up. You have to give up that holding on to a certain identity because it's going to be ripped apart. It's the nature of impermanence. So our practice is to discover that there is no self Mm -hmm. that's permanent and you are not who you think you are. saying who you are. We don't know. There is no who. There's just this continual evolution of this construction. The construction falls apart because things have been pulled out from under you. Then you try to rebuild it. <laughs> You've been, now I'm going to get, now I'm going to get the twin towers. <laughs> now I'm going to really build my impregnable real personal identity and that's it boom crash the twin towers the impregnable self this is who i am forget it so ultimately it's it's that self not that you're not going to experience loss but you're going to not be surprised. And you're, and you're going to be able... Now, the, the other side of impermanence, usually we see impermanence as something to grieve about. <laughs> oh, I lost this, I lost that. But the plus side of impermanence is now I'm free <laughs> to be this. <clears throat> to grow in this way, to adopt this without impermanence, there's no evolution, there's no growth, there's no deepening, there's no change. So there is opportunity from impermanence, but we, because we're so attached to this permanent, you know, self-construct, We don't see that when we have an empty basket, we're free, (laughs) you know? We're free to put stones in there, take them out, (laughs) take the pretty stone, take the big stone, because it's all, you know, it's not a permanent thing. It doesn't have to weigh us down. So, There's, I'm using this metaphor of the two extremes here. The one extreme is being the sort of person, like perhaps this businessman, who's like Velcro. Something comes along, attachment, sticks to you. 
The other extreme is Teflon. It just slides. You don't get attached to anything. Just like everything slips right off you. So there are, there are people who just like chocolate, just ice cream. My daughter, I hate to put her in the same category as chocolate and ice cream. But there's some truth to it. And then there's, well, I don't know that, you know, there are things that I guess I'm not even aware that they've slipped off of me because they've just slipped off. They just, they don't touch me. So some people are kind of like that. It's amazing, you know, you don't feel anything. <laughs> you know, you lost this and you're happy, happy-go-lucky. Um, so there's, there are those two extremes and those are not uh, healthy extremes. Uh, they're not healthy conditions uh, from the point of view of Zen. However, there is a middle, not in the way of half and half, but a just right, a just right way of addressing these relationships that we have with the world, with people, with things, with animals. And I came up, I think, with a rather brilliant uh, metaphor for this. <laughs> and it's, it's the metaphor of, some of you sewers will know this, a basting stitch. Do you know what a basting stitch is? It's one it's a running stitch, a long running stitch that's designed to hold some layers together. But it's temporary. A basting stitch is designed to temporarily hold things together. And it's meant to be pulled out. Right? So if we can have connections with things, and I like the word provisional, that we're, we're attached to things like a basting stitch attaches two pieces of material. Yeah, it's there. But we know it's temporary. It's there. It's real. But we know it's going to be pulled out. It's inevitable. Like we have the five remembrances in our practice. We know that it's going to change. And we're going to lose it. So this basting stitch is just a temporary... It's wonderful, it's connecting, it's real, but it's just a provisional stitch. And if we can have that understanding that all of our attachments are like basting stitches, we will not be thrown. We will not be thrown into crisis when the stitch is pulled out as it will. There'll be a loss, 
but it won't be a crisis. It won't involve unnecessary suffering. There will be some pain, but it won't, it won't destroy us. It won't um, paralyze us. So if we can work with that, that understanding, it's not that we won't have attachments, but they will be of a certain kind. And just because they are temporary, they will be precious. Just because we lose them, they even a past self, you know, uh, you know, I remember my all my past selves, and I have a certain fondness for them. You know? But it's just because I'm no longer that. I can I can remember the twenty year old. You wouldn't have recognized her. And I barely recognize her, you know, heavy makeup, lipstick, heels about that high, (laughs) Uh, hair down to my waist, an intellectual. (laughs) I have a fondness for that, Barbara. (laughs) But I have a fondness for the friendships that are no longer there, for the parents who are no longer there, but not, you know, because they were, they were impermanent, they were incredibly precious, and I can, I can hold them in, in my memory without being devastated. <clears throat> so one of, the, one of the recommendations that I have and, and this is just um, common knowledge, in a way, that when you have a profound loss, and I was just uh, discussing this with someone who has lost a, a child trying to get pregnant, and, and the, there was a miscarriage, and a number of miscarriages, and what the parents did was take the uh, discarded embryo and they went down to a river and held a ceremony for this embryo. And they actually uh, built a fire and placed this embryo in the fire and chanted and then took the ashes and scattered them in the river and watched watched those ashes return to the impermanent flow of life which the river symbolizes. So sometimes what we do is when we feel this intense personal loss, which has to do with our own personal identity, we can transform that into a more universal experience of impermanence. 
So it's, no, it's not so incredibly personal. So we have a ritual. We have a funeral. We have a memorial. We have a wake in which we, in a way, depersonalize the loss and give that loss back to the community, back to the community of life, back to impermanence, back to the river. So that's why we have funerals or memorials because we somehow understand that this isn't just my loss. It, it's life. And so the funeral, funeral is a ritual which, which acknowledges that, that, that this is life. This is, this is what life is about. And so it kind of takes the sting out of the personal, that very personal connection. So I recommend that you do a little ritual, you know? Uh, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, they have, after the 49th day, during which the, <clears throat> the spirit goes through uh, this, they call bardos, uh, different stages of consciousness until consciousness is completely disappeared. They have a, a, a memorial, it's very beautiful, where <clears throat> they put a, a, an image, a photograph of the deceased person or animal or whatever, uh, and in, a, in a bed of sand, and they chant, and they light a fire, they light a match to the image, and chant as that image burns. And it's a, it's a release. It's just releasing that being into the impermanence of all life. And so, and it's done as a community. So th- these kinds of rituals, even your personal ritual, this is what the, uh, this couple who lost uh, a child did. They just did it, the two of them, and went down to the river and... and was a, were able to make this, transform their personal loss into something more profound, more universal. So I want to end uh, today's, my portion of today's talk with uh, a, a portion of <clears throat> Mary Oliver's poem, uh, Blackwater Woods. This is the ending of her poem. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go.
That is our practice.